there. Thank you for connecting with me and subscribing to the Living the Sky Life podcast. I hope that the content of each episode brings you hope, connection, and some valuable takeaways. The Special Needs Parenting Village is large, so you should never feel like you have to travel this journey alone. Please connect with me through my website, Facebook page, or Instagram account, and let's keep this conversation going after each episode airs. If you are enjoying the podcast and are listening on Apple iTunes, please leave a rating and review or share Living the Sky Life with others. Thanks again for tuning in to Season 2 of Living the Sky Life. Welcome back to Living the Sky Life. Today's guest has a background with extensive experience um, as a speech pathologist, and we get into some discussion about motor planning and how that um, affects speech patterns um, and the ability to speak. So a little bit more about my guest today, Peggy Ernest. She is a pediatric speech and language pathologist. She received her PhD from the University of Connecticut and has over 18 years of experience working in her own private practice called Columbia Motor Speech Therapy. Peggy especially enjoys working with children with complex speech disorders, such as apraxia. Over the years, she has been inspired by many aspects of her job, but especially by the determination, strength, and creativity of the kids she is fortunate enough to work with. Peggy is also the author of an eclectic mix of books, ranging from professional books and poetry to books that raise awareness of food allergies. Her most recent venture is a novel entitled Nonverbal. Peggy took all of the inspiring characteristics that she observes in the many children she has worked with over the years in order to create a fun and inspirational character named Jake Prescott, who changes attitudes using his own unique form of communication. Nonverbal is written for young adult readers and touches on current topics, including cyberbullying, kindness, inclusion, and the value of true friendship. Above all, the book is about the life-altering lessons Jake is able to teach to those in this world, even without words. It is the winner of the 2020 Preteen and Teen Human Relations Indie Award, the 2020 winner of the Special Needs Human Relations Indie Award, and a 2020 finalist in the Inspirational Fiction category of the Next Generation Indie Book Awards. So please enjoy my conversation with Peggy Ernest. So today on Living the Sky Life, I have the pleasure of talking to Peggy Ernest. Peggy and I were introduced by um, a couple other friends of hers that have been podcast guests of mine. So I'm always excited to get referrals for excellent people to talk to. So Peggy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm also excited to be have been connected with you. <laughs> I have a lot of questions for you that hopefully we'll answer some questions that maybe other parents have. Um, Peggy is a speech language pathologist by trade um, who specializes in uh, motor speech disorders. So I guess just kind of going back, how did this career path find you? Did you, is this something you've always been very intrigued with or do you have a personal connection with apraxia and some speech, speech delays? Well, honestly, um, I guess the answer to that question is um, you know, when I was 16, my mother suggested that I should be an occupational therapist. And given that I was in that rebellious stage, I rebelled all the way over to studying speech therapy in school, which <laughs> is pretty much almost the same thing. Um, so that's how I got to be a speech pathologist. But I mean, I'm really grateful for that suggestion and for that little bit of rebellion because I do really love what I do. But um, I was thinking about this and um, the way I got interested in uh, motor speech disorders specifically was um, kind of a, I guess, a happy accident, um, even though it didn't seem so at the time. Um, so I went, uh, I, I, got, I had a minor surgery that turned into a very major surgery. So instead of a one day out of work, I was out of work for about six to eight weeks. And during that time, I, I read an article um, by Deb Hayden, who is the founder of the Prompt Institute. Um, and it was um, entitled The Motor Speech Treatment Hierarchy. Um, and that article honestly changed my life. I was doing um, early intervention at the time. And um, the things that we learned in school don't really look at the motor movements for speech. They don't delve into um, what the motor development is and what the motor needs are for kids. Um, who are learning to speak as they would if you're going into like a physical therapy or occupational therapy program. So um, I still have that 
journal um, and I, I have notes like notes and highlights and, and coffee stains all over that article because um, I read it over and over again during that week and in the time afterwards and I it just really um, kind of started this whole journey into kind of specializing in motor speech and I looked at my kids my early intervention kids um, in a whole new light when I went back to work after that um, and I and I it really explained a lot of things to me and I started looking more into not only that but also like the sensory aspects of speech uh, much like an OT would so I'm just here to just say publicly that my mom was right um, and uh -oh. <laughs> uh, I probably should have been an occupational therapist but uh, but that yeah that's how I got here and when I started to look at it look at um, kids in that way I mean um, it it it, the world of speech made a lot more sense to me. Um, so that's the- There definitely are more connections than even I realized. Our um, spelling therapist um, for Skylar is actually a trained OT. Um, and you know she has helped us, aside from the speech part, explain to us a little bit about why his body is doing certain things when he's trying to spell or he's trying to whatever. So can you go into a little bit more depth about motor speech delay and, and some of that um, sensory focus that you learned from that article and, and kind of what all that means to the, to the mom or the lay person that doesn't know <laughs> exactly the connection. Yeah. So that particular article, um, and I, and, and like, there's, there's a system of, there's, there's a cue system called, uh, prompt, which, um, allows people to, therapists train people to, to touch kids' faces, to help them to move in different, um, in different planes of movement. Um, so this motor speech treatment hierarchy is is the theoretical basis for um, for prompt therapy, um, and to me that's like the most important. Not necessarily the cues, but um, this hierarchy of movement. So I assume if you take any child development class, they teach you that if you don't have the muscle tone to sit up, then it's probably very unlikely that you're going to be standing and and walking until you develop that that baseline. Um, skills. So the hierarchy is based on that and looking at kids in terms of um, what do you, what are their prerequisites for speech production, which would be, you know, having adequate muscle tone to support your respiration, being able to vocalize, um, and then starting from, they call it the, the, the um, vertical plane of movement, which is jaw movement, and how each of the um, subsequent articulatory movements build off of having those Base, baseline movements, those basic movements, um, and how um, if you can't move your jaw, if you don't even realize from a sensory perspective that you have a jaw, um, then your tongue and lips can't then move to give you more refined movement for speech off of that jaw, off of that, that sort of foundation for speech. Um, and this is so, so true of the kids that I work with. Um, I have a a two-year-old that I'm working with with a diagnosis of, of autism who came in, um, I questioned the diagnosis. Um, he seems very apraxic to me um, and is very highly communicative, um, but was not even moving his mouth to speak. Um, so we had to start at the, at the bottom. We had to start by teaching him that he had a jaw. Um, and that does require um, some, some sensory input that requires a lot of feedback and repetition. And you um, definitely feed that into those early developing speech uh, motor movements and, and words. Um, so all of those things, realizing, uh, having good sensory awareness is so important for um, developing your motor speech. Um, and to be able to view it in terms of a hierarchy is really interesting. Although the hierarchy obviously Every kid doesn't fit this hierarchy. As a matter of fact, this little guy that I first kid that ever exactly fits the hierarchy in the way that I'm treating him. And I, I keep telling it, showing his mom the hierarchy of movements and telling her, look, look, this is exactly where he's going. So um, it's it's just a really important way to look at uh, at speech development because you can't you can't say that speech isn't movement. Speech is a lot of things. You know, speech is respiration, it's vocalization, it's, it's cognition, um, it's social emotional, um, it's all about motivation. But um, when you come down to it, speech is kind of the finest fine motor movement that we make. And it, it, it's like a dance of all these subsystems that we have to control. And it's kind of amazing that any of us ever learn to speak without having formal, um, formal instruction in it because it requires so much motor control. 
see why, um, you know, a couple of the points to what you said, why a lot of um, autistic adults find their voice and, and their ability to speak later in life, um, you know, in their 20s or whatever, and how all hope should never be lost that they won't ever utter a word. Um, it would seem like the maturity of the muscles in their face and in their mouth and all of that just, it takes them so much longer over time to develop. I'm trying to picture, you know, what you're saying. Skylar had severe hypotonia um, at birth. And so we, he had bibs on him for, oh my gosh, two and three years beyond teething because he drooled so much. He had very difficult times taking a bottle or nursing, of course, anything. And it didn't relate, it didn't clarify with me until much later that the low tone in his body we were seeing was also in his face and in his muscles. He couldn't, you know, chew food. He had really hard times eating and all of that. And so we, I remember using like, like the little vibrating star toy, um, and put it in his mouth and like the little spiky toothbrush that like the plastic toothbrush thing and just kind of rubbing it. Like on his nook brush. Yeah. 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 The nook brush. Yep. Yeah. And yes. a bunch of those different things. I didn't see what it was doing, but I'm sure it was helping. So I'm just wondering, we, we a lot of times, um, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, because I always get confused when people are diagnosed with apraxia versus autism. Skylar has never been diagnosed with apraxia, only autism, but he's never mm -hmm. spoken. He's never even made sounds like, you know, vowel sounds or any sounds at all um, to form letters. So I mean, I would assume that that's apraxia, but is there a different definition for that? Am I misunderstanding really what apraxia is? Oh, a different under, yeah. There's a, so a lot of times, you know, kids with um, autism will have a dual diagnosis of childhood apraxia of speech. So apraxia is considered a, a motor planning disorder um, wherein there, and it sounds like, description I hear, like when you're talking about low muscle tone, um, that's more of what I would consider a, a dysarthria of speech because that affects the lower, the muscles, when the muscles are impacted um, and also his sensory system is impacted. Um, but higher level um, speech disorder where the muscles work fine, um, but the child for whatever reason can't plan out the sequences and movements for speech. So one of the classic examples is a child who can't produce a W sound or an O sound. But if you put a birthday cake in front of them, they can round their lips fine to blow out the candles. So automatic tasks are fine. And there's nothing wrong with the musculature, but it's, um, it's more of a neurological disorder where it's hard to plan out the movements of speech. Very hard to conceptualize, I think, um, but, and that contrasts to the other, the other um, more common diagnosis that I always deal with, which is dysarthria, which is um, something that deals with actual problems with the, with the speech musculature. Um, and a lot of times with those kids, what you will see is um, the jaw will slide back and forth because the jaw muscles are not stable enough. Um, and this, I see, um, I don't know, maybe 80% of my caseload have difficulty with, with jaw, either jaw stability or jaw movement. Um, and, and that's such an important thing that, that we need to focus on that, um, again, going back to the motor speech treatment hierarchy and how that all changed the way I view things. Um, hey, the jaw is super important, right? The jaw is really important when we're talking about speech. Um, so, so yeah, so apraxia is more of um, inconsistencies in speech and not being able to plan out the movements of speech despite having um, appropriate muscle tone. Um, sometimes I think that some of the kids that come in that look like they have apraxia actually have an underlying um, hyposensory disorder, meaning they're undersensitive. So, um, and I like to use the example of like, if you talk about people that are uh, children that are born hard of hearing, they always begin to babble, but they eventually will stop babbling because in the feedback loop, they're not hearing what that babbling is doing. So they can say, ba, 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 but they're not hearing that. So the feedback isn't getting there. 
And so um, they will eventually stop babbling because it's not doing anything for them. Um, but I kind of think it's sometimes the opposite in some of the kids that I see that have um, autism and apraxia. And that is that they are undersensitive. So they're seeking sensory input. Um, and so if you babble or if you make sounds, and you make a duh sound when you're babbling, and you can hear that, but you don't know how you made it because you're undersensitive, right? You can't feel what movement made that, then the motor plan cannot be, um, cannot be consistent in your head because you're not getting appropriate um, oral sensory feedback, if that makes any sense. So it's kind of like the opposite of those kids that stop babbling because they're hard of hearing. So, so yes, we do things to kind of um, heighten sensory awareness um, it, where, with whatever sound or word that we're working on. Um, for those kids so that they get consistent feedback and can develop consistent motor plans to draw on for speech. Hoping that makes sense. No, it does. And you know, one of the things we were talking about before we started recording was, um, you know, in my, my mind, when Skylar was younger, we did speech therapy along with all the other therapies for years. And then we just kind of were encouraged really to let something go. If something had to go, he was just being overworked too much, you know, PT, OT, speech, ABA, all the stuff. And right. it was like a full-time job. So the opinion of most of the experts and the therapists around us were like, let's just let speech go for right now. Let's hold off on that because he's not really, doesn't seem interested. He's not really progressing. And I'm like, well, he is nonverbal. So I could kick myself now for that decision because he needed not only the motor planning with OT and his fine motor skills and all of that, but I think we would have been so much further along with some sort of communication had we kept speech on board all these times. I mean, clearly hindsight as a parent is a horrible thing to, <laughs> to uh, you know, just inflict on yourself. But so for the parents who have, you know, children that are seven, eight, nine, and they are still nonverbal, they're not really sh making sounds not showing that they're wanting to speak or be verbal, what would your you know, best advice to continue early intervention and what types of things should we continue doing? Thank you. That's a global question. Well, first off, I gotta I put know, my speech therapist too. hat on as if you're like, it's sitting in my office and say, that was not a poor decision <laughs> on your part at that time. Sometimes we do have to, sometimes these kids are completely overscheduled. Um, and, and, and you know what? I want to say that in, in my experience, the, the number one best thing for kids is that, that they have family involvement in any of the therapies and that there's carryover. Um, but that also puts a lot of pressure on a parent to be carrying over different, different techniques. Um, so I try to make them as naturalistic as possible and as fun as possible when I'm doing them. Um, but I, I, I'll share another story that has happened very recently. Um, you know, I feel like you got to go with your gut, but um, I just, I have a, I have a eight-year-old little girl who has a dual diagnosis of Down syndrome and autism, um, which also includes dysarthria and apraxia. And the stars aligned um, in the past few weeks such that she learned um, she learned how to use her voice to communicate. She made the connection that her voice um, is, is able to get her something. Um, and we, we'd worked a lot on oral sensory. We, we worked on augmentative communication as well um, because we use um, the GoTalkNow device. Um, previously, she used the LAMP device, but um, that seemed to be something that she perseverated on. So you have to really go with the flow, keep your eyes on um, what's working, what's not working, but I, um, I never gave up on the oral sensory part of it. I never gave up on the, um, the vocal verbal communication. I always feel like it's always appropriate to continue as long as we, to continue to work on verbalization, as long as we know what our goals are. If, if it's just so that we can get a child to say stop or no, or, um, turn it on for their favorite device and to have a handful of words that can control their environment, then that is success for some kids. Um, so I, I um, had been working with this little one since, since uh, she was about two and a half years old. Um, so um, 
I don't want to say drive yourself crazy, but um, yeah, I, I feel like I never want to give up on at least giving kids some form of verbal communication if it's possible. So, I mean, I think my entire sorority um, are all SLPs because <laughs> I, I hear from them so much. Really? I'm like, I didn't know that's what you did. I didn't know that's what you did. And a lot of the rest of them are all like um, educators in the special education departments or the directors of their school departments and all of that. So I've learned a lot from them, but um, I, I, you know, I, I do ask the question for honest feedback about AAC devices and things like that. And mm -hmm. I, I know there's a place for all of that. We tried Proloquo with Skylar a little bit ago, just to kind because we found that with Pex, because his motor ability is still so low, he was always picking the picture closest to his right hand, mm -hmm. he's right-handed, even if he didn't want that item. And also it seemed like by giving him two choices of like a food item and a drink, he would pick the one closest to himself and we would give him that and he didn't want it. So then we would switch the pictures. He'd pick the other one. He didn't want that either. And then I'm like, oh, you, you don't really want either of these. You're not hungry and you're not thirsty. You probably want to go play outside or you want to just do something else. So you're so limited when you're giving a few choices and you don't want to give seven choices because then that's overwhelming. So we tried Proloquo to think, I just wanted him to hear a voice saying things because I can't always be there saying words to him. So would you suggest, you know, for families that have had success with those, um, to your point a minute ago about always continuing to try to get vocalization out of your children or young adults, um, to, to be constantly saying the words, um, like if they're going up the stairs saying, you know, we're going up the stairs, there's 14 stairs and just narrating and, you know, everything in their world to keep the flow going of conversation, them hearing the words or that's too much. How do you justify both, both things, having AAC and yourself to try to. Oh, that, that's such a good, that's a, a great question. And I feel like it's a very individualized question in all honesty, because the, the, the devices, for example, um, they don't, they, they might work right for a child, but if they don't work for the family, if the family isn't going to remember to bring the device with them, or if it's, if they're just not going to buy into it, which they don't, and they have every right to make those choices, um, then they don't work. But then, then there's, there's families that feel it does work for them and they can um, actually expand communication by, by using a device. Um, and, you know, it depends, it really depends on a lot of different, different factors. Um, I, um, I just lost my train of thought, <laughs> but I think that you're, the, what you're talking about in terms of modeling um, verbalization all the time, um, I think that works definitely for kids who have, um, who are at kind of that sensory motor point of learning. Um, kids with apraxia often respond to pairing motor movements with, with speech as if you're saying, you know, you're saying up, up, up. I also believe that, and one of the first things that when kids come in for, for an assessment here, um, there's two things that I like to try to determine. And one is, um, you know, what's their currency, right? What is it, what is it that completely motivates them? And, you know, what focuses them? Um, and I feel like those are, those are just the, the very important things that we need to be um, focusing on and using to get them to use whatever communication that they're going to be using um, and expanding expanding on those because um, I know sometimes those those interests can be very um, very limited so I don't um, there's just so many methods you know and I know there's no right one I mean clearly I think exactly. we've done all of them and we're still trying to you know make things work I just am trying to figure out to see a light bulb, a small light bulb go off in Skylar about, you know, this is connecting. Spelling seems to be doing that a little bit right now. But again, it's, it goes back to the basic principles of speech therapy. It's all motor planning and it's, you know, it's trying to make his eyes coordinate with his finger and to point to the letters. And what it's done for us, at least, is it's shown us, even though he's been nonverbal for 18 years, that he knows exactly what's going on in the world around him. He understands what's on the news and he, he knows how to spell a ton of words. And I thought it would be, you know, a first grade, maybe reading level or um, understanding. And he has blown my mind. 
So <laughs> probably as a detriment to him, it's pushed me that much harder. Like, oh, okay, you're 18 year old intelligent. Like, you know, everything that's happening. So I'm not giving up. No, I'm going to push you even harder because <laughs> I know it's in there. He's got to be frustrated to not be able to speak anything. I think like you mentioned earlier with the child, um, you know, just kind of the D sound and it wasn't connecting um, to his brain and he couldn't save it and memorize that. Yeah. Um, I feel like Skylar's, a lot of his banging and frustration and hitting is because he wants so badly to tell us like, you're getting that wrong or that's not what I want, but he can't get it out. And I just want to crawl into his mouth and his mind and figure out what, what wire is loose and tie it up for him. Because I, I know it's all in his head. He just can't get it out of his mouth. Yeah. Yeah. And I know and he can, I mean, they have heard him make sounds. I know he's not, um, he doesn't have, you know, throat issues or voice box issues or any of that stuff. We've had everything checked out. Um, right. But I'm sure you have in 18 years. <laughs> the hearing I, test. I know everything. you're supposed to ask me the questions, but can I ask you I a question? Yeah, absolutely. You were talking about pecs and choice making and always going to the right. So, um, and I told you before we started that I'm not familiar with the, the spelling. Uh-huh. And so how is it that, um, how is it that he spells? Is he supported? Um, um, sometimes, cause he gets tired. Um, but yeah, it's, um, it's, it's not a 26 letter board yet because um, that's a little overwhelming. So I have three different letter boards with, um, you know, 10 or so letters on each. And um, he, we read him a age appropriate uh, passage of material about the election or about whatever is going on. Um, and then um, we'll ask him to start spelling a couple of words. So we'll pull a word from the reading and say, Skylar spell technology or whatever. And we found that the bigger the word, the harder the word, the better he does. He doesn't like when we give him a little simple word because he's just like, seriously, are you messing with me? <laughs> like, don't ask me baby words. So we'll say technology and I'll, and I'll say, Skylar, you know, spell technology. And I'll hand him the board that has the T on it, but I don't tell him where it is or that it starts with T or any of that. And then he points to the T yeah. and then we're like, after T comes and then I'll hand him the board that has the E on it. And then he'll point to that. And gotcha. so he's spelling all these words independently. And then after about the second or third word, we start asking comprehension questions from the reading. So we'll, you know, ask him whatever, um, some question from the reading, just like anybody else would see. And then um, he answers the question and we don't tell him the answer, what the word is. And he's answered so many questions but I'll put my flat hand under his elbow and just kind of support his elbow because he gets really tired after, you know, just yes. a few words because of his motor skills. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 And that's the kids sometimes need that stability. I have a couple of kiddos that need that even just to make the correct choices um, on a communication device or using an iPad or something like that. So mm -hmm. um, I think that's pretty incredible, actually. I yeah, think it's that's just pretty so incredible. neat. I just yeah. love the, I mean, but I'm not giving up on speech. That's why I want to absorb so much about how I, as a parent can help him speak. I mean, eventually spelling is great, but I can't, I would love for him to move to typing, but I'm not always carrying on a keyboard with me. So that's what I, mean, I was talking know, about, right? I need exactly. him, yeah. I mean, I need him to be able to say to me, like, or me to say stop and he stops instantly, or he tells me no or whatever. Mm -hmm. if, you know, if it's basic words, I just need to get something out of him. So I don't want to um, kind of be demeaning to him to, to like tell him everything like I did when he was a toddler. Like right. when I'm giving him a bath, like there's your leg and your other foot and your whatever. I don't want to do that and be condescending, but I, I, I don't want to not be talking all of the time either. So he hears it. Right. So, right. What, exactly. <laughs> what exactly. are we supposed to do? <laughs> right. And if he understands technology, I'm pretty sure he probably knows what a foot and a leg are too. So yeah. Oh, yes, of course. I know. I really do feel like, like that, that sensory component is huge and, you know, and I don't know Skylar, but from what you describe um, and I, and what you described, there is a sensory motor component and, and possibly in a practice, like you did say it, you said it's in his head. It just can't come out his mouth. So um, and maybe you hear him saying a sound sometimes that he can't replicate later. Um, and that is apraxia as well. And that's very, very common in that diagnosis of autism. So um, 
the question always remains. And that's the question that I feel like these are the questions that we should ask ourselves as SLPs when we're doing an assessment that are almost more important than those standardized tests. Well, that are definitely more important than those standardized tests. You know, okay, so he can't do this. How are we going to get him there, right? He can't do this. What kind of input helps him to come closer to that that target? And, and you know, and for speech, especially, um, if I say clap your hands, you're, you're going to be able to watch that. You're going to be able to feel it, but you're going to be able to watch it. You're going to be able to hear it. And for speech, you can't see any of it, right? You can't see any of it unless you're in therapy. So, um, so for these kids, like for Skylar, like obviously that auditory verbal where all of us learn by hearing and speaking, um, as I said earlier, like so easily, most of us, right? But that auditory verbal um, isn't, isn't the same as the rest of us. So what other kind of input is gonna get him closer to those targets? And then you just break down the steps with your clients. You just kind of see where they are oh, and then yeah. take a I step love- back. And it may take you know a minute, minute to minute, like little breakdown of a skill so that you can master a piece at a time. I do, I'm laughing because I do, um, I do some consultations with some schools. And sometimes they will ask me to write the objectives uh, or sometimes I will, um, you know, I'll, I'll do like an independent eval and, and I'll write up my goals and objectives and I do kind of micro analyze them because I feel like if you're going to say, you know, Skylar will produce B in all words everywhere, then that's, it's just not the same as as breaking it down for these kids. We really do need, and also it allows us to see progress towards the goal in a, in a, in a better way. So I do write, they don't like my goals and objectives, honestly, because <laughs> in the schools, because they are very microanalyzed, but I do feel like that is the only way we know if we're making progress. Um, because especially if you're talking apraxia, if you're talking apraxia, these kids are super, super inconsistent. So if you have a goal that they're gonna produce a word or or, or a sound, well, they can master that, but still not be able to have intelligible speech because they're not producing it in all contexts. So you really do have to break it down and say what the context is going to be, what the feedback is going to be, what the input is going to be that makes them the most successful. I love it. I wish more people did that. I mean, the IEPs sometimes are so foreign, even after we sat through them and, and read them and participated in it because it's such an overarching goal. Like, yeah, like you said, I, I don't know how many times over the years I've been told, oh my gosh, he mastered that skill and I, but he can't replicate it. Right. Especially when we get home and they're like, well, you have to do it exactly the way we're doing. And I'm like, well, no, I don't want him to be a robot and only be able to do it. If I hold the toothbrush in my left hand and if I do say it exactly the way you say it, I mean, I need, he needs to learn flexibility and the skill behind the word or the right whatever the goal is it's so frustrating i'd rather have the micro goals so i have more to celebrate well exactly me too me i have been made fun of more than once for literally celebrating these small things that i see the kids doing within a session you know dads have laughed at me over and over again i'm like you don't understand what a big deal this is it's a big deal you know what i mean these things are big deal in in some of the kids lives you know and they they they're all adding up to you know, to the larger picture. Um, but you really, in order to really know if they're making progress, you do have to break down the goals and make them very, very concrete, very understandable and very generalizable. Um, yeah, absolutely. I love it. Yeah, move here, please. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we've talked a little bit about nonverbal, so it's a kind of a good segue um, to your book. So you're the author of a book called Nonverbal. Um, and I love the description. It shares the life of a young man named Jake who has Down syndrome and is technically nonverbal, but he has a sixth sense, loves music, and is very persistent. So um, what motivated you to write this, all of your training? Um, yeah, well, you, know, you knew yeah. it was needed or? <laughs> you know, some people have suggested that I change the name of the book from nonverbal because people see that as a as kind of negative. And um, I also have I have a blog that I started where I explain <laughs> or explain yeah. that I feel like it is something to be celebrated. Um, not that it's something to be wished for, but when you have a child who's nonverbal and they can figure out um, 
so many different ways to communicate um, effectively as Jake does in the book. Um, I, I think it's, it's something that is pretty inspirational. So yes, um, so I often start with kids when they're nonverbal or um, I work with a lot of kids who have um, Down syndrome um, Down syndrome, autism, apraxia, they're 90% of my caseload. So um, all of those little things that I actually ended up admiring in the kids um, were what kind of came together to create this character named um, Jake. And I have to say, I never planned on writing a novel ever. Um, but that's how much they inspired me. It's it's the little things that I, I think that I'm lucky, you know, I, when I went back to work on my doctorate, my, um, my advisor at the time said, when you leave here, your knowledge is going to be an inch thick and a mile deep. So like you specialize in one thing. And I feel like parents of children who, who have nonverbal children or children with special needs, their knowledge is an inch thick and a mile deep about what their child is like. Um, but because I work with such a variety of kids with, with Down syndrome or a variety of kids with communication disabilities. Um, I, I just found myself being inspired by many, many things, by their ability to be who they are and not care what people think, um, for them to not really worry about things like the rest of us worry about. Um, and so anyway, Jake, Jake is kind of a jovial yet nonverbal kiddo. He does use a communication device. Um, he also responds to um, song, which is embarrassing for his older sister, Emily, because um, in order to get him to pull out the words that he does have, she often has to sing with him. Um, and he, like many of the kids that I work with, and I just talked about not caring what other people think and like liking what you like and being who you are, I feel like they, um, they have the corner market on that sometimes because, um, you know, kids can be hyper-focused on, on, on um, things like the Wiggles at 20 years old or Elmo at 20 years old, and it makes them truly happy. Um, and it fills something in them. So Jake has that. Um, Jake is a little obsessed with Sesame Street. Us too. <laughs> that we made up for this for the book, but um, music definitely speaks to Jake. And um, he's a very persistent guy and he has a sixth sense and he's able with all his different forms of communication to to kind of change people's perspectives about what it what it means to have special needs, and and also um, he changes one person's life significantly in the book. Aww. well, everyone will have to pick that up and and find out the end and, and <laughs> the little teaser that you left. Um, you, I mean, you're you're a wonderful writer. I, I, uh, you mentioned your blog, um, and your Facebook page is called Pieces of Me, um, Peggy Moffat Ernest, um. And um, I will link up how people can, you know, log on to that Facebook page and, and follow you too. But um, your poetry is beautiful. Did you always write that? And then, I mean, have you obviously have a passion for writing, um, but the poetry pieces are beautiful. And I just wondered what your inspiration, does it just strike you about the topic that you write about as it's happening or just things in your head? <laughs> well, you know, I, I think it's, it's Thank you so much for saying that. Um, so I, I, I took pieces of me kind of, um, you know, luckily my initials are Peggy Moffat Ernest, but I always do feel like when I write a poem, as I feel about nonverbal, it is a small piece of me that I'm like kind of giving away and kind of showing to the rest of society, right? And it's hard. I'm, I'm a little bit of an introvert. I'm definitely very shy. Um, and I don't like to show all my feelings on my sleeve, but when I write, I do. Um, so I started writing poetry when I was young, very, very young. Um, um, I think one of my first pieces of poetry was about, it was called The Other Side of the Rainbow. And it was when I was like 12 or 13 or something. And it was about how you can't find it, right? It's not there, you know? So it's like this preteen angst that I was expressing that made my um, Catholic school teachers call my parents in because they were afraid about my mental health. But it's but, no. yes, but um, so I wrote a lot when I was younger, and then I have three kids, um, and they're growing now, and and I uh, I I found my way back to writing poetry, and um, you know, it's a way to express frustration with the uh, the things that are going on, and it's a way to express um, joy. It's a appreciation. I will write poems for somebody, and um, 
it really is it, it i i can't um i can't stop i obsess about them until they're done and they have to be perfect and if i give you a poem it definitely is you know, just giving you a little piece of me so um but and i just recently try like so normally they just come from being inspired or being frustrated um or wanting to give something to somebody or wanting to thank somebody um, i went through a really 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 uh, difficult health crisis a few years ago and i wrote a poem um because it didn't feel enough to say thank you to the people that helped me through this crazy thing um it just didn't seem like enough um and they were my angels on earth so um yeah, uh, but I just recently wrote a poem. I never had heard of this before. It's called Ekphrastic Poetry, where you write a poem about a piece of art. So it was kind of one of the first times I ever wrote a poem about something that wasn't like, it wasn't something Abstract. I was thinking. It wasn't yeah. a part of me. It was more like I had to write about something outside of me. And um, that was I didn't know if I could do it and I was up for the challenge. So I tried it out and we'll see, I entered it in a contest. So that was actually Good. a contest. So we'll see what happens, but I do love to do that. And pieces of me actually was just, I kept, I posted, especially during the pandemic, having a, a daughter that was a senior in high school last year, um, all the things that she was going through as a senior in high school, as a freshman in college, I wrote a few poems about that, that people related to. So, um, then I was like, you know what, maybe the 400 people on my Facebook page don't really want to see poetry, you know, maybe the dudes don't want to see poetry, maybe. So I just pulled out and I said, if anybody really wants to read it, you can just follow me at, at this little site, you know, in, in case I just figured some people might not want to see all my deep thoughts on, on my Facebook page. So I liked them. I, oh, I really liked thank them. you. That's yeah, so, that's I, so I, awesome. I, got teary-eyed with the most recent one that you wrote about um is it your nephew it's my yes it's my husband's remember? it's my husband's grand nephew um who's battling cancer right now yeah, yeah. so i wrote mm. a little prayer for him because yeah um yeah he's starting treatment at saint jude's in memphis um the, next week so um and he's gonna need more surgery on his brain we just found out so it's a prayer and i feel like that one is, yeah, I wanted that one to be shared for this little, he's six years old, just turned six. Then the week later found out about the brain cancer. So, um, oh, well, he's yeah, in my people tell me so I make them cry, which makes me feel guilty. <laughs> like it's, a, I guess it's a compliment, but it makes me feel guilty as well. So. Yeah. Well, that's the sign of a good writer. If you oh. evoke emotion in someone. So thank um, you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I guess kind of just wrapping up, if you, um, had to share advice. And I, I, I always say this, like, I always, you know, hesitate to say the word advice because nobody likes to give unsolicited advice, but, um, you know, just as an SLP, um, for parents who have nonverbal children or even young adults, cause Skylar's an adult now, um, you know, it, we all struggle just kind of grasping that, the, that they don't speak. It's really hard. And I will never give up. I always want a word, a word. I don't even care if it's a swear word. I want a word to come out of him. Um, I think he would feel so much just free, you know, in his own mind, if he could just say a word, I, I think it would go uh, just so far. And then I think it would definitely encourage him to speak more words because of the feedback he'll probably get. But, um, but anyway, I just wondered, um, you know, if you're, if you could share some advice with parents about just hanging in there, that it's never too late and that you're, you know, if your yeah. child decides to speak, they will. I, I mean, think a just parent, not to fret. A parent, I got to give parents credit. Um, I, I don't have a child with autism. I, I do have a child that had an IEP throughout his, his schooling and has some issues, but not in the same way that that people who have children that are nonverbal deal with. And some kids communicate better nonverbally than others do. And I feel like parents' guts are um, the number one, um, it, it, they determine the trajectory. You should listen to your gut. If you feel like maybe there's another something to try, or maybe, um, maybe the right method hasn't been used, then you can, you should certainly keep exploring what's out there um i i my favorite kids that i see are the kids that are giant giant puzzles um and it makes me happy to put those pieces together if i can if i can i don't have all the answers for sure um 
but um, that's why I, 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 I really enjoy the complex, the complex cases um, because I enjoy those small pieces of progress that we were talking about before and I can be patient for those. So it does take patience. I mean, I did share the story of the, the little girl that I was telling you about that just had that light bulb moment where vocalization meant communication. And this was after, what did I say? Like six years of, of therapy, both in school um, she wasn't really getting the same type of therapy at school as she was getting with me, but to make that connection makes me feel like it's, it, you don't, you shouldn't give up hope. You shouldn't give up hope, but if in your gut, you feel like something is not working and not being effective, don't be afraid to try something else. Don't be afraid to explore and to look for things that feel right to you as a parent. Um, some parents are, are, I think, okay with accepting that their kids are nonverbal. And as I said, possibly if they're good communicators in other ways that makes it easier but if your gut says that there's something else out there if your gut says I think what you just said um that for Skylar it would be a release to be able to say a word or just be able to say a few words I, I think that that's um I think that that speaks volumes and that you know you shouldn't give up hope if that's what your gut is telling you even at 18 years old even at 18 years old depends if depends on the types of therapies that have been tried before, you know? So yeah, and I revisit it over and over. Yeah. <laughs> we, we try them and try them again. Um, yeah. I just thought of something else to ask you too, just from a, um, I, I know you can only speak for, for yourself um, as a professional, um, but do you think that it's the more information, the better from a parent um, when they're coming to see you, or even if their child has been a, a, a client of yours for a long period of time, any information I feel like is good information. So if they're exhibiting one tiny little thing at home, that's a little different, would you prefer that parents just tell you every single thing and let you decipher if that's important to the treatment that you choose? I like it when parents share with me. I like it when this is another reason that I'm, I don't work like in a school system. I enjoy having a parent in a therapy session with me if they are willing to do that. If they need to take a nap in the waiting room or their car, that's okay too. But I enjoy knowing and trying to put those pieces together as well. Um, I think it's important when, you know, if, if there's a child who can do a hundred things in my office and they can't do them when they walk out the door, then it's not worth it. That's not really progress. So to know the kinds of things that are going on at home and to know the way we can maybe marry like a certain motivating activity or something at home, then I think that that only makes me more effective as, as a therapist and it only makes life better for everybody else. I don't know if that answers the question exactly, but yeah, I mean, I it's just like definitely knowing. a partnership. It I mean, is. It, it's lifelong, you yeah. know, as long as we can have a therapist that stays on board for a long time, I, I'm all for it. I love when therapists have the opportunity with COVID, it wasn't really possible, but to come into our home and just observe, yeah. not even give him necessarily therapy here, but just to see how he interacts with us because our kids are, I mean, any child, whether they have autism or not, they're totally different people at school versus at home or at right. church versus at home. They're not the same. Yeah. So um, if they could see how Skylar treats us versus how he treats them. Well, you know. yeah, I always say before I became a parent, I was doing a birth to three or EI. I don't know what you guys call it, but, and I would go into the home, which was wonderful, but I wasn't organized. So I'm really happy that I have a private practice now. <laughs> so I'd forget things, but anyway, I go into the home and I would say, you do this. And I'd leave them this whole list of things to do. And that's just not like I could go back and kick myself for doing that to these parents at that age. Um, but I, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's too much, but because the parent, you're right. The, the, the relationship with the child and a therapist is very different than the relationship with the child and a parent. So that's, you're right. The feedback is, is pretty important. In, in those situations where I'll say, try this. And I try to make the generalization activities for whatever we're working on as natural as possible. They can be done in the car or, or at the park or whatever without being very obvious. But sometimes they just don't work for, you know, for the, for the parent. And that's something that therapists need to know because as, as I said before, if they were doing it in the therapy office and only at the therapy office. Or so I, I guess, you know, in closing, if, if, um, if a parent or a therapist doesn't think a certain 
therapy you're trying or a certain um, goal or whatever isn't working, everyone should be vocal. I mean, yeah. you shouldn't ever neglect the fact that you're a team. And if you are saying, you know, that my child may be doing all of these amazing things for you at the therapy sessions, but they're not doing any of it at home, come teach me how to do it or let's figure out something else. You should never just take the note like they're doing great and then go, okay, and then go home. I mean, I've seen that happen. And it frustrates me that more parents don't ask questions mm-hmm. and say, what, what does this mean? And how do right. I do this at home? And right. All of that. So, yep. but if they yeah. heard you just say that, then that, that would be, that's awesome. Yeah. I, I like the questions. I welcome the questions. And yeah, um, I think, uh, like I said, parents are a number of caregivers, number one resource, older siblings yeah. also number one resource or younger siblings. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's a good point. Very, very good. Like what it, we used to develop games. Um, sorry. Well, just, I sent a game home with this little girl that's just working on her art production, which can be very, very frustrating. And her whole family played it right before, right before mealtime. And I just, I thought, that's what it's all about, right? Yeah. That's what it, it's not about singling them out. It's about bringing their communication into the family and into the community and um, interacting meet with them where them. they are. That's yeah. like our famous phrase that yeah. we say every day is <laughs> meet them where they are. It's so true. Ugh. Yes. Gosh. Yeah. yeah. Well, Peggy, thank you so much. Sorry, so we had some technical glitches in here, but um, I really appreciate your time and I'm so glad that we are now acquainted. I will link up your um, book nonverbal and also your Facebook page pieces of me so people can follow your poetry there as well. Thank you. Um, and I just thank you so much. Thank you so much. I had a great time and um, yeah, I just really enjoyed meeting you. Yeah, you too. We'll take right. care and have a good rest of your day. Okay, thank you too. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Living the Sky Life and we'll tune in for the next episode coming soon. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the Living the Sky Life podcast within Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play, so you'll receive alerts when new episodes are released. Subscribing is the best way to ensure you don't miss a single episode. If you like what you hear, be sure to select the five-star rating, provide feedback, and share Living the Sky Life with others. Thanks again for listening.